Hi guys, welcome to the third MHP episode. My name is Sara and I'm here with Jacob. And today's episode, we'll be talking about nutrition and sleep and the importance of a post-workout routine. Before we begin, um, kind of a controversial question. Is pineapple an acceptable topping on pizza? Here's my thing. I really like pizza and I've never met a pizza that's been improved by pineapple. So I've eaten that's pineapple pizza. Point. I eat it on occasion, mm -hmm. but it's just a, it's just a worse version of a good thing to me. That's my yeah. opinion. No, I totally what are your agree. thoughts? I totally agree. I mean, I'm Italian, so it's just never really going to slide. Have I tried it? Yes. Um, hopefully my parents, my parents don't listen to this, but I've tried it. Yeah. It just wasn't, it didn't make the actual food better. So I didn't really see the appeal because I think, you know, like pepperoni pizza, I feel like that could make the actual pizza better, but pineapple, it kind of just adds this weird little sweetness to it that I think you can achieve with other toppings. So hundred percent, that's our take. You guys let us know uh, what your guys' take is on this. All right. So for the first question, um, right before we start, what are your thoughts on the importance of sleep and nutrition in an athlete's uh, routine? And do you notice anything specific um, that athletes do? that distinguishes them from other athletes in this specific routine? Yeah, I think, first of all, there's no questioning the importance of it. And I, I don't know if that's going to be news to a lot of people. I feel like that's something that's just preached all over the place. But my thing is, if it's something that you've heard and been like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever, brush it off and, and uh, move on, like it is something you should be thinking about and thinking about how each respectively could be better um but at the same time you want to be careful about um something called nocebo which is if you've heard of the placebo effect which is where you think something's going to be good for you even if it isn't mm -hmm. it actually has a positive effect and you can do the reverse to yourself where if you had a bad sleep or you ate really bad the day before and then you're thinking about how that's going to mean oh i'm going to perform bad today you can actually just believe your way right into that being a reality. So mm -hmm. my thing is have a, a balance between prioritizing these things, trying to do them better. And then when they're not as good as they could be or should be, uh, kind of mentally free yourself from that and just focus on the task at hand. And, and you know, it's kind of like tomorrow's a new day, try to do these things better the next time around. But uh don't linger with them. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And I think it's also really good advice for the student athletes uh, because I feel like, especially because it's never going to be perfect. Yeah, no, it's absolutely never going to be perfect. There's going to be the midterm season, the final exam season. And then there's also going to be the part of the season where you're so demotivated that you just want to, I don't know, sleep a lot or you're super, super stressed. So that's, it's definitely going to fluctuate. Um, but I found something interesting through your notes um, that you wrote, I guess, four years ago now. Um, you had said that at the peak of your two of two horrible weeks of sleeping and just chaos, you then had some of your three best workouts ever in a row. Do you have an idea of why this occurred? Is it a coincidence? And what can you tell to our athlete students when they decide to be more student athletes? Yeah, well, for a little context, I was coming off of a back injury that was mm -hmm. quite debilitating at the time. And I had decided once I could actually kind of move again, 
I would just use it as an opportunity to just chase a lot of hypertrophy because it was like, I'm not going to be doing a lot of athletic things. So I was uh, mostly in a hypertrophy phase through that kind of period of time. And first of all, I think hypertrophy is a little more resilient um, okay. to some of these fluctuations. I think if uh, if I was training with a lot of sprints and jumps and throws and Olympic lifting and things that involve a lot of uh, neurological stimulation and, and high force outputs, probably less likely that I have these great workouts after terrible sleep and stress and all the rest. Um, but it also just goes to show like the, it doesn't mean it's impossible. And I think having these periods of bad sleep and stress and bad nutrition and all the rest, mm -hmm. it makes it less likely that your performance is going to be good on any given day, but kind of back to like, don't expect the worst. Um, you can have these kind of miraculous, unexplainable, like things were really, really good for a few days and couldn't tell you why. Mm -hmm. Certainly, yeah, I, I certainly wasn't helping things a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, it, as you said before, I don't think it's necessarily a surprise to a lot of the athletes and just people in general that sleep and nutrition is really, really important, uh, which is why I know even at McMaster, uh, the student, the, the strength and conditioning coaches do a really good job also giving like a guide of when you should eat what. Mm. Um, so, you know, you've worked at Forge. Um, did you guys have anything like that where you would kind of guide um, your athletes towards what, when they should be eating what? Um, or was it kind of just to their discretion or whenever they wanted to eat? Yeah, we, I mean, at the professional level, there's a, there's an expectation that you are taking care of business on mm -hmm. when you're on your own time. But I know, like, I wasn't in charge of a lot of the uh, nutritional things. Actually, our, yep. our goalkeeper coach covered a lot of these things. And I know he spent a lot of time thinking about, uh, especially when we're traveling, where all the meals you're having as a team, they're scheduled. Um, a lot of thought went into the timing, uh, what's included, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, for someone that's maybe not at the professional level at the moment, um, just know that, you know, there's, there deserves to be a lot of thought that goes into uh, the quality, the quantity, the timing. And these are very uh, complicated topics that don't have quick, easy answers. But, yes, that's um, you know, going in and crushing a pizza before the game is, is probably not the best idea. And And the nice thing is a lot of stuff comes down to common sense. It's like, if it's a bad idea, you probably know it's a bad idea. So... <laughs> yeah. If you can just be aware of those things, it can get you a long mm -hmm. way. That's true. And, you know, I'm actually kind of surprised by how you said that, especially at the professional level, the athletes are kind of expected to know, because I feel like what's kind of advertised is that every single team has like a nutritionist and somebody that like keeps track and like, you know, makes sure that every single athlete logs their food. So at least to me, that was a surprise. But I was wondering, and this is, I guess, kind of a little bit off topic. Um, do you know if any of your athletes ever ended up eating a diet that was I don't know super unhealthy per se and were still able to perform well or did you actually were you do you think you were able to find kind of a difference between that 
or did you not even have access to that, that at all? Because I know as a strength and conditioning coach, you're not really able to like give advice on nutritional and diet plans. Yeah, I think, well, usually where my uh, role falls into is like giving the general advice, like, hey, let's yes. do a little more of this, a little less of this. <laughs> and yeah. um, and then in terms of like actual nutritional guidelines that things get a little uh, out of my scope. But uh, I think... I would say in terms of my own experience, it would yeah. be hard to tell um, if someone was thriving and doing absolutely horrid things to their their nutrition because you're not seeing all of that. Mm -hmm. um, most often what happens is you see the dips in performance. You start to That's dig true. in, question why, and then you find some nutritional explanations, which mm -hmm. uh, I've seen a few times. But... The thing is, is like, there's always going to be athletes that go out and do incredible things on the worst habits and routines that you've ever seen. And it's just, you know, some talent will just rise above those things. And they're not, you know, you see your favorite athlete pounding back Skittles and he's not winning because of the Skittles. Yeah, um, exactly. It's that the... uh the Skittles aren't enough of a negative factor to impact what he's doing. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's good to get those things aligned in order in the way that we see them and think about them. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's a very good point. Uh, for the second question, um, this kind of relates to muscle soreness. Uh, so I guess a post-workout um, routine. So there's this guy, um, his name is Dr. Mike. He is a professional bodybuilder, but he's also is a very knowledgeable individual that you seem to speak on and also read on a lot. Um, and he um, ended up developing some type of technique uh, that helps you avoid maximal soreness uh, in relation to when you work out uh, what. Um, obviously, it cannot be 100% of the time. But what are your pointers on this? And also for the audience, who is Dr. Mike? Yeah, so Mike Isretel is uh, one of my favorite sources when it comes to like hypertrophy, bodybuilding type of uh training and advice he's he's got quite a big channel and uh, a lot of stuff out there a lot of resources to consume mm -hmm. but maybe not a lot of stuff super transferable to the the athletic population but i'll i'll say this he's uh i i think what you're talking about is his kind of method of keeping intensities low in the early stages of a program uh and actually fun fact the the thing you called out earlier about my three great training sessions during that whole time I was actually uh trying to learn his stuff and I was actually mm -hmm. copying exactly his uh his advice and routine during that time mm -hmm. so I, I was on his program during during uh all that success so <laughs> mm -hmm. uh shout out to him but uh yeah I'll I'll say when it comes to um an athletic setting the easiest way you can think about um, soreness and this also gets into making sure no unneeded injuries arise from training mm -hmm. is the three factors of novelty volume and intensity um, intensity being the uh, relative effort of a thing so I think this was maybe something I actually should have explained in previous episodes but mm -hmm. intensity doesn't mean oh I ran at a hundred percent for 30 minutes and I'm exhausted. And that was really intense. Intensity is 
should be thought of in terms of force uh velocity like a, a max effort throw a max effort sprint and actually intensity declines the longer an event goes on mm -hmm. uh if you sprint at max effort for five minutes straight uh the intensity is actually going to be very low at the end of that five minutes due to the fatigue and the volume yep. and all those things so it's important to know volume is the quantity intensity is the output um and then novelty is the third factor here and when these things change um that's when soreness is going to increase and that's when risk of injury is going to increase mm -hmm. so, so the do, do you mean that um when something is novel that's when the muscle soreness is going to be higher right yeah so that that means a new exercise uh right. or a new variation something like that cool. so the easiest way to think about this is when one of those things uh changes or goes up uh the other two should go down or at least one of the other two should go down so okay. i use the example of say you work up through a, a speed development program and on week yeah. four you're doing six max effort or sorry six sprints at 80 percent effort so the right. intensity is 80 percent the volume is six repetitions um the following week going into week five maybe it's a new phase where the intensity goes from 80 percent to 100 percent instead of keeping all the parameters the same maybe you go from six reps to three and then over the weeks following you build your way back up and you end up back at six reps um but you don't start there because by increasing the intensity you're asking a lot more from the body and if you just assume you'll be able to do a higher intensity with all the same volumes and everything else um not that not that it's a recipe for disaster but you're just increasing the chances of something going wrong so a conservative approach is to just scale the other factors back um so that you can push other things forward that makes a lot of sense and by any chance is this also related to the whole idea of uh deload and load um when it comes to planning um workouts depending on what part of season you're in yeah i mean when you look at uh in terms of a strength training uh context you could apply the same principles when mm -hmm. uh if you're trying to push a, a strength-based area um you're gonna make jumps in the load that you're using and with that you should see a drop in the repetitions um or some other parameter that's gonna make it a little less stressful mm -hmm. um and that's actually like the easiest method of progression if you say uh, okay, right now I can do X amount of pounds for eight reps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then you drop the reps down to uh, three. And now you're working at a higher weight than, than your eight rep max. And then over time you work with that weight and you slowly just add repetitions over time. That same weight, you go from three to four to five. Eventually you're at a point where you're doing this heavier weight for eight reps and boom, you've just progressed. And, yeah, uh, there you go. And a new PR. Exactly. So that's uh, just like the easiest, simplest, cut and dry strength training progression you can approach. Um, and then you would just knock the reps back down with some higher weight. Uh, and it's also a way to measure progress without ever having to do a one rep max. 
uh, or any traditional testing because even doing something like a one rep max has inherent risk to it. It's not the most yes. uh, optimal thing to just throw at an athlete um, mm -hmm. during the training process. So it's something I basically never use. And when I'm doing explicit testing, it'll be like a three rep max or a five rep max or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's you, you should be able to see progress throughout uh, just the training cycle without yeah, needing like a testing day or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, this progressions and kind of this uh, improvement that you see through athletes. Um, how do you notice that? Is it through uh, collecting uh, data or is it straight through performance during practice? Well, I think I I'm the biggest proponent that you should just be able to see and feel progress mm -hmm. on the field because if all of your measures of progress are in the weight room, right, you don't actually know that it's translated into things that are on the field or on the court. Mm -hmm. Um, so I know like old school strength conditioning is like, we need the back squat to go up. We need the bench press to go up. And yeah. then we know that that's going to make them better on the field. And it's like, yeah, sometimes maybe, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, best case scenario, you do great work in the weight room and then you just look at what's happening on the field and either things are looking better or they're not. And I know that's very subjective, but mm -hmm. I think it's even more powerful from the perspective of the athlete. Like, do I feel like I could cover more ground? Do I feel like I can take more contact? Like right. these things are to me much more important than my back squat went up 10 pounds. Yeah. So, okay. So, so it's relating more to the actual athletic performance um, rather than like PRs that you were able to achieve in gym. Yeah. And I think along the way, as long as you're tracking what you're doing, you can mm -hmm. see, you can say, oh, I did this week. I just did five reps at this many pounds. Mm -hmm. And if I look back just five weeks ago, uh, that was a little bit lower. So, yeah. um, you know, as long as you should be keeping track of what you're doing and, and mm -hmm. then that should leave clues that things are progressing in the right way. Mm -hmm. Um, but ultimately I think most of the attention should be on how you're feeling, how you're performing, how uh, getting feedback from coaches uh, on how you're looking out there. And that's always going to be number one. Yeah, very true. And, you know, relating this kind of to how you're feeling, especially after practice and a lift, uh, foam rolling seems to be one very popular way that athletes cool down. Um, for our viewers, before we even start this conversation, uh, could you explain three easy reasons uh, why foam rolling is important and why it's even used in the first place? Yeah. Uh, first and foremost, reason number one is if you feel better after you do it, just do it. It's like one of those things where there's a lot of, and we'll get into it in a second, a lot of yeah. science behind uh, why it works and why it doesn't work for other things. And mm -hmm. it's like, if you stand up and you feel better, like that actually does count for something to me. So, um, totally. you know, throw it in the program and then don't think twice about it. But uh it can also have blood flow benefits um, to, to increase circulation and get, you know, fluids moving, which is positive. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the biggest thing for me and the reason I always uh, turn to it and, and, and explain it by is uh, the neuro neurological tone. So a lot of people think that what's happening is you're breaking up all this tissue and you're 
causing all these changes to the the muscle and the fascia and the all all the soft tissues and in reality all the looseness that you feel after foam rolling is based on the nervous system what's happening is you're sending signals from the muscle to the brain and then you get this reciprocal signal back that um decreases the tension in the muscle because at rest even right now like if my arm has no soreness in it or not like it doesn't feel tight there's a mm. degree to which my brain is maintaining some sort of tone or tension mm -hmm. on the muscle um that's just always existing that muscle is never fully completely like dead and relaxed um so yeah, what yeah. we're doing is we're just decreasing that which then makes you feel like oh I've, i'm looser i've got all this new range of motion the problem is because it's neurological um in its foundation it's not actually changing anything so an hour later the next day like it, nothing's changed so my biggest thing is you should do it and then you should go into some mobility work or into some exercise mm -hmm. because one of the biggest factors in when you're stretching and doing other things is it's that muscle tone that's biting you when you're trying to stretch and, and actually create changes to the length of a muscle or some other tissue so you can kind of cheat the process by reducing that tone with foam rolling and then doing something productive that's going to uh have long-lasting effects unlike the foam rolling mm -hmm. so would you actually recommend doing foam rolling before an, a, a workout too and not just after for yeah for me after is more of that if it feels good do it great mm -hmm. uh if i'm trying to actually use it to target a specific area that maybe needs some work then it would be the first thing on the program. You loosen it up with the formula first, then you go into some passive stretching. And then as we talked about in other episodes, um, you go into some active work in those long ranges of motion and you actually mm -hmm. get the muscles firing in this new space that you've just freed up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that's a really good point, especially because a lot of people kind of believe that you just form roll to form roll. And I even notice, especially with like the younger athletes, they really struggle to do it because I think mm -hmm. the, like, the knowledge that you just shared is not really something that a lot of people know. Um, and what, what do you think is the easiest way to just influence younger athletes from a younger training age to start from rolling so that it, you're able to actually see the benefits over a long period of time? Yeah, you know, you know what the best way is, is mm -hmm. to destroy the myth that uh, it should suck because that's true. You, that you is, see, yeah. you see people get on a foam roller and they're wincing and they're like, ah, and it's, it looks like this terrible experience. And yeah. this was actually something I learned um, from Mike Boyle when I went, uh, me and a buddy of mine went down to his, his place in Boston and did his certification. And he talks about how he always says foam rolling should never be more than a six out of 10 discomfort. Hmm. Uh, and if you think about the things we just broke down in terms of how it works and if, if a small dose, a small intensity of foam rolling hmm. allows the muscle to relieve its tone and relax, if you are giving it a painful stimulus, you're actually probably creating the opposite effect where the brain like is going into loop. it's going into protective mode and it's like yeah. i need to protect this area something's going wrong 
and um, it can actually be counterproductive. So mm -hmm. if you understand that it shouldn't suck, mm -hmm. keep it at that six, six out of 10 or less, um, then you're probably just going to enjoy doing it more. And then you can actually more sustainably keep it as part of the routine. Mm -hmm. I think that's really helpful advice. Yeah. And I really do believe that um, if people do kind of break up that myth of foam rolling sucks, which I think even sometimes when I was younger, I had it like, especially mm -hmm. when I would be rolling on my calves, it hurts so, so bad. And I, and usually I end up just going down to just doing one calf at a time. I don't even put both on the roller because it just completely sucks. Uh, yeah. But at least it was helpful even with me, uh, even just to understand why some people include foam rolling in their warm up. Um, because I do believe that sometimes people believe warm up is, you know, yes, you want to raise your heart, get yourself ready for the workout. But foam rolling is seen so much as just you're on the floor, you're going back and forth for five minutes, and it's, you know, seen as just cooling down. Um, but as you just said, it's a lot more than that. Yeah. Um, and, and let me tell you that when yeah. I was in high school, because that was my phase of trying to mm -hmm. take stuff from, awful sources online and try to figure out a training routine for myself i used to spend an hour foam rolling and i'd be sweating and sore yeah and it takes a lot it, of work it was it it was suffering because i was overdoing it and i i thought i had to hit every muscle so by the time i did you know all the all areas of the leg and then i do my back and my shoulder and like it would sometimes usually take me around an hour and it would suck. That's insane. That's like an, and, that's a whole other workout after your workout. Right. And yeah. uh, if, you know, for the average person that's just trying to like make it a, enhance their routine and, and make it part of the process, that's not sustainable. That's for sure. So yeah, you won't be able to make a long-term habit uh, or routine out of that. No. You're just going to start growing to hate it, hate it more. That's very true. All right. So before we wrap up today, um, I know that we had um, posted a poll up on um, Jacob's story. Um, did any questions come through? I got one from Coach Dom. Shout out Dom. Mm -hmm. uh, he uh, he's a soccer coach local. That um, uh, he's he's a very curious guy. He's always asking me questions. I like uh, I like yeah. what he's doing over there, but. Um, he asked about work to rest ratios um, mm. and some uh, resources around that. I, I don't have anything off the top of my head to to point towards, but um, this could be a, an interesting topic to get into a little bit because uh, it, it plays a role both in the gym and with um, the even skill components uh, of things mm -hmm. you might be doing because you have to understand the the intent of, of what you're trying to get out of the, the exercise um, and the various energy systems, because if you are trying to get something fast and explosive, and I see this butchered in, in sports practices all the time where the coaches are looking for some quick explosive action to be made in mm -hmm. some specific setting, uh, but they do the drill for five minutes straight and then they go take a minute break and then they're, they're right back in it. And it's, the the ask of the drill is not aligned with the parameters um so understanding that you're you're really going to fall into three categories of you're doing something at a high high effort for under 10 seconds with long rest periods 
or you're going to be doing something that feels, I guess what you would call traditionally intense or like fatiguing um, in kind of like the 30 to 60 second range um, in more of like a one-to-one -one work to rest ratio. Um, or you're looking at the other end of the spectrum where you're doing something for many, many minutes. Um, but then that necessitates that the intensities are lower um, and things like that. So you can actually get quality repetition. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's something that gets lost sometimes. Cause I think I, I think back to when I was doing my own, like, like working on my shot and, and practicing my skills, like mm -hmm. there was no thought towards rests or how long the work should yeah. be it would it'd be i'd go till i was exhausted and then i'd go sit in the corner and then yeah. i'd be like okay i'm good to go again and then mm -hmm. uh as an athlete if you can have some thought to like okay i want i want to be quick in this action i'm going to make sure that i do three or four really high quality reps and i'm just going to pace and walk and let the heart rate come down because I promise you, if you're actually doing something at high effort, reps six, seven, eight, nine, start to look bad real quick. And Absolutely. and either you're going to be doing low quality reps or you're actually just cheating the intensity and you're not going as hard and intense as you think you are. Yeah. So just build the rest intervals into it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Dan, for that question. Um, and you know, as we wrap up this episode, um, Guys, don't forget to send in any more questions. If you have them, we'll be happy to cover them on every single episode. Do not forget to give this podcast a follow. Um, and I just want to thank you, Jacob, yet again for another great episode. And we'll all see you guys next time. Thank you. Bye, guys. See ya.